Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to another episode of the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. I'm glad you're here with us this week. It's June here in New England, which means today it was 52 degrees and raining. We're having quite a chilly spring, and I don't know if summer ever is going to arrive. But I'm glad to be with you, and I have a very special guest that I'm excited to introduce to you today, Dr. Leonard Weldon, and I'll tell a little bit more about him when we get into his introduction. I want to thank those of you who have sent me messages and comments about the podcast. I'm glad you guys are learning from our guests. I just want to say I feel like I am learning the most of anyone uh, in this process, and I want to thank our guests for coming on the show and for sharing their knowledge Uh, and experiences with us. It's just been an amazing experience for me so far. I have two short tips for you this week. The first is something that came up in one of our online groups, and it had to do with paying your business credit card. Sometimes these statements come, and they're quite large. Of course, I recommend that you pay them in full. If you're carrying a balance on your business credit card from month to month, you're doing it wrong. That's maybe what a line of credit is for, or obviously even better cash is for, having enough money in your account to cover your monthly expenses so you don't have to dip into a line of credit. But certainly you should never be carrying a credit card balance in your business. So we're paying in full, but it's painful sometimes to anticipate that big payment that you know is gonna come due and then see it hit your account. It might be 20000 40000 maybe it's $100,000 that comes due at a certain point in the month and it puts a big dent in your checking account balance. So here's my tip for today. I recommend you set up an automatic bill pay two weeks after your normal statement draft date. So if your normal monthly bill is $30,000, set up an auto payment two weeks into the statement for $15,000. That way when the statement comes, it's only for $15,000 and your checking account balance isn't seeing these big swings uh, week to week or day to day. That helps keep your cash flow more stable and your account balances more even. And I think it's a good little tip that maybe is useful for you. The second is we've had a lot of great book recommendations on the podcast. I like to read a lot of books and I read a lot on my Kindle and I'm actually reading a great book that I'll review in a future podcast. But anyway, a lot of us are Amazon Prime members and we like that because we normally get free two-day shipping with all of our orders. But a lot of things that we order don't really need to get there that quickly. Maybe it's Sharpies, maybe it's paper, maybe it's some random supplies that I can wait a few days for. So if you look down below the free two-day shipping, a lot of you have noticed that there's free no-rush shipping. And if you choose free no-rush shipping, maybe it gets there in a week instead of two days. But what's nice is that right next to that, it'll say, get a $1 reward for select digital items. And what's nice is that that $1 credit can apply towards, for instance, Kindle books. It can also apply to some other digital media uh, that I don't really use as much. But every time it seems like I go to buy a book on Kindle, I have enough of these rewards to build up that where I don't get charged anything to buy books on Kindle. Another thing is that if you notice this 
credit is applied per order. So if you order 10 things, you're only going to get a $1 reward for that order. But maybe if you order three of those things today and three the next day and four the day after that, that's three orders and you can get a $3 credit. So I don't think you should necessarily wait until you build up a credit to get this. I think if you want a book and you feel like you're going to get value from it, you should just go and buy it. But this is a neat little trick that makes me happy. Today on the podcast, I am interviewing a friend of mine. He's a mentor and role model, Dr. Leonard Weldon. He's an oral surgeon practicing here in Keene, New Hampshire. I was sick when we did this interview, so please excuse my voice, uh, which I struggled with a little bit throughout the interview. But Dr. Weldon is one of the most genuine and kind people I have ever met. And if you've ever had the fortune to meet a truly kind individual, you will agree that kindness is a virtue that has an amazing ability to lift everyone it touches. Dr. Weldon has a sterling reputation in our community, and I think every practitioner can learn something from his approach to patient care. He's very interested in alternative and holistic medicine, but in a non-threatening way that I think appeals even to the skeptic. Dr. Weldon is a graduate of the University of Minnesota. He completed his training in oral and maxillofacial surgery at Nassau County Medical Center on Long Island, New York. Dr. Weldon did additional training in maxillofacial surgery as a senior registrar for the Health Service of England, serving in Peterborough, England. He's a diplomat of the American Board of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery and a fellow of the American Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons. Dr. Weldon enjoys family and friends, as well as reading, writing. Uh, He's a poet. He likes outdoor activities, especially croquet and biking. One of my favorite stories about Len is right after I moved to town, I invited him and his wife over to my home for dinner. We had a lovely meal. And as my wife and I were cleaning off the table, he started playing on the floor with my kids. And I came back in the room a few minutes later, and my daughter, who was probably four at the time, was riding him like a horse, slapping him and yelling, giddy up, you little lion. I would have been mortified, but Len gave me a look that let me know he was having a blast and I could only shake my head and go back to doing the dishes. So without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Dr. Leonard Weldon. Len, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for spending your afternoon with us. Oh, you're so so welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to have you on the podcast, even though my voice is a little bit off today. Len, you recently announced that you're retiring, I guess, quote unquote, retiring in October of this year. Tell us a little bit about some of your interests outside of dentistry that you're excited to have more time for. Well, good. And before I tell you that, Lance, I'm going to say I I am in quotes retiring, but I'm still doing some great uh, operating room surgery in Maine. And I hope to have about five days all in one week in another uh, city in Milwaukee to still work because I got these skills that I love and I really hard to give them up, but I just don't want to do it as much. But I'm turning into a writer. I have one published poetry book. I've got a second one nearly done. I'm just about done with a screenplay called Freezing Jack Snow. And I've got two children's books in, in that I'm writing in. One of them I'm a little more excited about the other. And, and I've just met a woman who used to work with, uh, I think his name was Maurice Sundeck, who wrote, wrote The Wild Things. Sure. So I'm going to try to be a published author, and then I want to do some lecturing. And I'm hoping one of my bucket list things in retirement is to be invited to do a graduation speech at some college or university. And I've been preparing, preparing to inspire young people for a while. That's great. 
So with so many interests and talents, what drew you towards dentistry as a career? That's a really good question, and I like answering that question. First of all, I had a, a wonderful dentist when I was younger uh, as a grade schooler, and whenever we finished treatment, he always seemed to have enough time to spend 10, 15 minutes with me. So he, he would just ask me questions, we would talk, and I thought, what a nice person. The other thing, he was the best friend of my best friend's dad. My best friend's dad was, in our small town, the general surgeon, and this of course, my dentist was his friend, and they, they had nice homes. They each had summer homes near each other on this lake, and they seemed to have a nice relationship. But my dentist had more time to play than my dad's, my friend's dad, who was the general surgeon. So I thought dentistry would fit me. When you started your oral surgery practice here in Keene, uh, what, what did you want to be known for? Did you have a vision for what type of practice that you wanted to establish? Again, a really good question question. Yes, I, I think a practice should, should reflect one's um, life, one's family, one, and any endeavor. So my practice wanted, always wants to be very respectful to everyone. Everyone I encounter, whether it's on a bus or a walk or some other place other than my practice, I'm assuming they are beautiful, wonderful human beings that I get to interact with. Same with my practice. And even if it turns out that someone's a little bit of a turkey, and you can define turkey any way you want, if I can kill them with with kindness, if I can cover them with kindness and attention in, in 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 a professional way, I'm thinking it's a good interaction. And I think that's, I think our jobs are much more, or our work is much more than our job. Our work is to be in service and to help people to be better human beings. So that's what I try to. Yeah. And what, what are the things that you feel like you do on a daily basis to kind of fulfill that mission? I, I think I listen. I think one of the most important things we do as any kind of a practitioner is to listen, to look our patients in the eyes and to give them the respect of listening. Uh, they solve all the problems. Most of the time, they solve a lot of the problems. And I think sometimes we are in such hurry. We have these units of time that need to have a certain production to them, which I've never thought about. Never been to one of the courses where you learn how to get more patients or you learn how to be more productive. Never felt that was an issue in my practice because each person that I've seen has been my best emissary for my practice. So I listen to them, and then I treat them exactly like they're my family. No different, even if they're pretty unkind. Sure, sure. I went and heard you speak recently, and along the lines of what you're saying, I have written down here a quote that I I read actually fairly often. Uh, This is what you said when you were lecturing to the hygienist and I snuck in the back. Uh, You said, I'm always trying to tell patients they are beautiful and special. I don't tell them with words. I tell them with my ears how I listen to them and give them my full attention. And that's something I've really tried to learn from you. You are. Thank you for that. I do remember that now that you've recounted that to me. And I guess I said the exact same thing. Your ears are such an important tool. Yeah. In your practice philosophy, Len, is is there a difference between simply eliminating pathology or fixing the chief complaint versus promoting uh, a patient's health and wellness and, and well-being? And, and how do you kind of view those two different sides of, of being a, uh, a doctor? I, um, I do take both of those into consideration. Of course, I know how to take out wisdom teeth, and I know how to do osteotomies and things that an oral surgeon is supposed to know how to do, and I try to do those very well. But I think it should be sort of more global than that. 
I, um, I have lots of handouts I give people, whether it's regarding curcumin, for example, which is a great anti-inflammatory. There's about 250 published articles that say it may prevent a cancer. So I, I do some cancer surgery, but for everybody who comes in, I try to give them a little tip on some sort of more integrative medical approach to being a healthy person. So it, it becomes more germane if I have a headache issue, maybe related to temporomandibular joints, or if I have a burning mouth syndrome or ulcers within the mouth. That's different than taking out a wisdom tooth or a tooth or preparing someone for orthodontics. But those things may actually, you know, a, a bit of a, of a nutritional kind of support, whether it be magnesium. Lots of people are low in vitamin D3 and magnesium, for example. And I may run a test, a magnesium blood test or a, or a, or a D3 blood test. That's the animal form of uh, D vitamin. And there, and I, I'll pass out current thinking and alternative thinking on migraine headaches, for example. So I think it applies very specifically to some of the ailments that we see as dentists, but also as as kind of an alternative to sort of allopathic medicine and general cultural beliefs. Food is our medicine, and medicine is our food, according to Hippocrates. So I try to apply that within my practice and not be invasive to them and not, and I often say I'm not a physician, and I say you may want to check out this online, and I give them lots of handouts, and I also say you may want to give one to your physician. I'll see people on statin drugs, for example. Statins decrease coenzyme Q10. So I always say to people on statin drugs, and they're used for cholesterol control, and there's controversy in cholesterol anyway, but I'll always say be sure to take coenzyme Q10 because you don't want to diminish that in your body. You will end up with a heart attack. And I say, well, you might want to give this to your physician just in case he or she isn't aware of that. That's another example not to be intrusive or invasive, not to be, I'm not practicing medicine, but to be a sort of a fountain of information that I enjoy studying. I've been in studying naturopathic medicine since I've been my late 20s, early yeah. 20s, actually, not late 20s. And I think that the attempt to not only fix what's just immediately wrong, but also kind of promote wellness, and you're talking about listening and making every patient feel special and beautiful, I think that is a part of why I like being an orthodontist. I mean, we get to see our patients every month or two and be an influence for good in, in their lives. And, and I think that there's something to be said for our role as doctors and teachers to, to promote that, you know, that confidence and uh, that emotional well-being as well. I think you've hit it right on the nose. And I think I was glad to hear you say doctors and teachers because the definition of a doctor is a teacher. And I think that's what some of what we are. And I think there's good studies out there that show if you really care about someone and they get better in any illness, I think that this probably is, I'm good. this is, this I can't tell you that I've read, but it's probably like a placebo in a way. You tell somebody how special or good they are or that they are going to do well, that automatically sets them up for doing well. So I, I appreciate what you just said. Yeah, it's kind of what my practice does as well. That's yeah. what I try to do. Yeah. And for people out there listening, I mean, I've been so fortunate to my time in Keene to have an oral surgeon uh, like you who I can refer my patients to. And I can tell them with complete confidence that, that, you know, you're going to love going and this is going to be an amazing experience. And, and I tell them, you think I'm like overselling this, but you're going to come back to me and you're going to tell me, Oh my gosh, he was the nicest guy. Why can't you be more like him? <laughs> That's funny. That is kind of you. And it reminds me of something I have a patent on. 
I patent a very simple thing, which I've tried to promote. I've actually tried to get some companies interested. And what I do, I hardly give palatal injections anymore to get specific about a technique. I do on third molars and I do with, um, say, molars on adults. All children get injections via the buckle. And they, of course, it's a transpapillary injection. And I put a catheter on my short needles. So when that catheter is placed on the needle, it exposes only the bevel of the needle. So you're looking at about a millimeter, a millimeter point two or three. And if you put a topical any place in the mouth that's non-keratinized, mucosal tissue, that's all the buccal tissue and lingual tissue and soft palate tissue, if you put a topic on there, it'll get quite numb for a millimeter, less numb for two. Some people say it'll get a bit numb at four millimeters. So if you keep your needle penetration to one millimeter, one millimeter, point two or three, and you inject slowly, and you don't necessarily need one of those little computerized syringes, just the, just our, our talented fingers and our neural pathways, you just inject with a little bit of pressure transpapillarily and you'll get the palate numb so all kids get numb if they're on nitrous or just local not asleep by virtue of a buccal injection first with with this needle catheter exposing the tip of the needle only and then it's transpapillary till you get the palate numb so they hardly know they've had an injection i do the same with adults bicuspid through bicuspid on the molars i usually scrape away the keratin so I take a curette and I just rub the keratin, get rid of the keratinized tissue, apply topical for 90 seconds, use a needle that has a catheter exposing only the, the basically the beveled end of the needle, and I inject very slowly. So I can give injections, and that's the big complaint. Yeah. So try that. Cut a catheter off a little shorter than your needle, expose the bevel, try that. It's really yeah. helpful. That's a great tip, and I think we could use that in orthodontics for placement of mini screws, yes. for uh, laser surgeries. I mean, there are some orthodontists doing some minor yeah. you know, surgical type procedures. So, Len, I want to ask you this question: What do you think or do when you make an error in your diagnosis or in your treatment? Uh, how do you put that in perspective and deal with failures that I'm sure you have occasionally in your practice? Holy mackerel, Lance! I don't know if you're this well repaired all the time, but what a great question. It is what we all dread as practitioners. And I, no different than anyone else, I take it so personally if I lose an implant. You and I did this case where I did a maxillary central phrenectomy. And I actually, I did this phrenectomy and, it, and her papilla blunted between eight and nine. You remember that case? I do. Is that papilla still a little blunted? A little bit. I think it looks good, and I think we've moved past it, but I I remember exactly the case. And so this 14-year-old or 13-year-old or 12-year-old, I can't remember exactly, but she was just beginning to be go from sort of childhood and entering her young adult life. And this papilla got blunted because I either did too much, and I did. we did both buccal and palatal, and sometimes I'll make my incision right between the teeth to try to capture some tissue right between the teeth, and uh, it blunted. And I have to tell you, I missed the boat. And the way I missed the boat was it was inflamed. So it reminded me, never do surgery in inflamed tissue. This child wasn't cleaning well. Her papilla was a little swollen, a little red. And I thought, oh, I can do this surgery. It'll heal up just fine. Well, it didn't. And I may have lost 
10% of that papilla, and, and Lance was just saying it looks pretty reasonable, but I, I remained blunted, and I saw this child every week or every two weeks. I bet you I saw her over a six-month period while the, while the folks wanted to kind of step on my head each time. But we... we you know, we made it through it. We were, I was always respectful. My staff was respectful. And it is horrible. So for me, I try to plan well, execute well. I try to remember my failures. And it's always one of the worst things for me in practice is to fail at something. We expect 100%, which I don't know many professions get 100%. I don't even know if many professions expect 100%. But we, I expect that. And it seems like many of my dental colleagues go, gosh, you know, I didn't get this quite right. And if I lose an implant, I blame myself. It's all done for free after, you know, again, if it's five or six years later, I may charge them half. But for implants, I redo them and I'm thinking, there's a possibility that they just didn't like the metal. It's not necessarily my fault, but I, it seems like I blame myself. But Lance, if I could take another moment and just just digress and say this, I view people as a continuum from neuroses, which is the, they're neurotic, they're on one end, and the other end of that is they are, I think you could say psychotic, but in between is sort of a normal person. Well, what it really means is a neurotic takes responsibility for everything, and someone who's psychotic takes responsibility for nothing. So I used to take responsibility for everything. I mean, if one of the launches out of Cape Canaveral or Cape Kennedy didn't make it, I'm thinking, what wasn't I doing right? Which is ridiculous. <laughs> but now I'm much more centered, meaning there are other reasons for failure than, than my own input. And I, and, I, and I have actually a personal thing. I have a child, I have a, a, a lovely adopted child, who may be a little psychotic. She blames everybody else. And of course, I want to love her to a better place. But we don't have to take responsibility for everything, but we certainly should take responsibility for what we do. So when I have a failure, I look people in the eyes and say, I'm sorry, this hasn't worked out the way I wanted to. I don't say it was my fault, because I think that's a little damning. I don't really know all of that. But I do, I do say I'm sorry, and let's, let's rectify this. Let's yeah. take care of this. And I never think money. How am I going to get money out of this? I think, let me just rectify it for free. I don't always say for free. I may say we're going to check on your insurance. You don't have to worry about the cost. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, I agree. There seems to be this balance, and I think you said it very well, between learning from your mistakes and taking enough responsibility that you turn that into an opportunity for growth. But on the other hand, not beating yourself up so much that it's driving you crazy and that you can't go to work the next day because you're so you know uh, demoralized by by the error that you've made. It's, it's, a, it's a fine balance that, that I think we all have to figure out. I, I, lo- I appreciate what you added there too, because I think it is a fine balance. Good, good. So you mentioned here a couple of scenarios where you know we're dealing with a parent or a patient who's upset because something has gone wrong, whether it actually has or whether it's just their perception, maybe they're a difficult patient. But in any case, what advice would you give to a young doctor who's faced with an angry or upset patient? Um, I would always say, try not to, and I'd like to say, don't get defensive. And I, again, this is that time to apply the ear theory. Listen very closely. Listen as long as they want you to listen. And then respond humbly. I think it, it's fine to say, I have never thought that I'm smarter than anybody or that someone is smarter than I am. 
I, I assume that we're all about the same for most humans. You know, there are certainly some very exceptional people who are incredibly gifted. Um, so I never condescend. Again, I just listen. And I always say we will, I will do my best to change this or to rectify this. But to be humble, not to condescend, and uh, to be respectful of their concerns is, I think, what one needs to do. Great. I know you've worked with many orthodontists over your career. Maybe we'll, we'll switch gears a little bit into that. Are there certain characteristics or skills that you've seen uh, the successful orthodontists, I guess this could apply more broadly to dentists in general, but what are the personal skills or characteristics that, that lead to success that you've seen or that, that earn your respect when you see another doctor doing something? What, what do you think has, has led to their success? That, uh, again, I'm glad to respond to this. I'm, I'm going to make it a kind of a very broad comment, and then I'll get a little specific. One, it's always nice to work with people who are um, people who aren't know-it-alls, people who are bright, who know their their specialty or their profession well, but people who are open and willing to learn and be uh, receptive. That's how I approach everyone. So I'm expecting to learn something, and if I can contribute something, I'll do that. So in working with patients, like with orthodontists, and I have worked with several, many perhaps, and um, as long as they're receptive to giving some feedback, like I've called Lance, I've called you a few times saying, what do you think, would it be okay if we got these wisdom teeth out, for example, on a 12 or 13-year-old, because I just know it's so crammed in there and it'll be easier at this time. Or I might say, this is where I feel a little trepidation, not with you, Lance, or Charlie Post or others, but I, I, I sometimes I hesitate to pull out bicuspids because they're pogonion or other, their anatomy to me, I like to see a strong chin. You know, I, I, so if I think, gosh, we're going to, or if I see that their mid face is a little bit sunken in, I'm going, do we want to do bicuspids here? Don't we want to kind of advance a maxilla? So sometimes if people, if practitioners see one solution for many problems, I have to go, okay, let me talk with, let me just have a conversation here so we can both learn. Um, so that's sort of part of it. Some people are not very approachable because they just, they pretty much know everything. So it's harder for me then as a specialist to kind of approach them. But my main um, charge or my main responsibility is to the patient. So I have to approach practitioners even when, you know, it might be a little uncomfortable for them. So to work with someone who's open and receptive, and I never say this is the answer, or I have the right answer. And if they could, you know, if they just even said to me, I know, Len, this is going to be a little less than we want. They don't want to do surgery. This is how I can get there, even though we only need five millimeters. I need 12 millimeters of width of a tooth out. So, so it really depends on that personality. And I'm going to take a moment to go a little broader than that. I, on several occasions during my life, I'm astounded that doctors of some kind, dentists or physicians or chiropractors or naturopaths or institutions, the NIH or AMA or the ADA, hold paradigms so tightly that I'm thinking, aren't, aren't we supposed to be way open to the truth? So sometimes I'm wondering, are we all truth seekers trying to find the best solution for our patients, for humanity, or whatever it may be. And some people are stuck in a paradigm. 
And I, I'm so glad I can say one of my qualities is I'm not stuck in a paradigm. I want to learn what the very best thing is to do for in any one given situation with all of what's out there. I guess I hope that made a little long-winded. I no, that's, ex- that's exactly why we have you on the podcast, Len, is because I think you do have this integrative approach to everything that you do. And you know, you're, you're kind of, you know, you've got the man with the hammer to whom everything looks like a nail. <laughs> yes. And then you've got Len on the other end of the spectrum who's open to any solution, no matter where it's, where it's coming from and what discipline it involves. And, and I think that that is a mindset that I think could be brought out to a wider audience. Gosh, you capsulize what I say so well. You, yeah, you really, that's exactly it, Lance. I want my children to have this broad thinking of how, I tell this, I tell my children all the time, we as humans are really problem solvers. So you may have any kind of a career, but you're still a problem solver. So you better find that solution or keep all of the different things that come at you in your tool bag so you can use it to solve some problem. Yeah, yeah. One, <clears throat> I'm really struggling with my voice here. Uh, I'm in the hospital with Lance, who's just really yeah, sick, and he's doing this podcast for all you folks out there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, one one problem or one challenge that a lot of doctors and small business owners have is is employee issues, hiring and firing, and, and leadership. And we spoke a little bit about this just just before we started recording here. But I'm curious what things you have done in your practice to assemble a team that really reflects your values and your mission. Thank you for that question. I have uh, almost, it's my philosophy of life. So everyone who's ever worked with me, I want to somehow show them that I respect them greatly, that I think they have nearly infinite potential. All my employees got their education paid for if they wanted to go to school. They had to get at least C's, and I would pay them after they finished their um, course. And I've told all my employees over the years that I want the very best for you, just like I would want for any one of my best friends. So just give me enough lead time when you decide that you're not going to work here anymore so that I can get prepared for someone else. So I want that respect to go both ways. So I've I've shown that respect and I expect that from them. And I hope and I think I've earned that. So it manifests that way. The other thing is I always thought it was really important to give maternity leave. I've only had one man work for me, but I assume then I would have given paternity leave as well. Because I think it's so important to have have this baby and mother together. And I can't remember what I did. I think it was like it may have been eight weeks at at full pay or or 16 weeks at half pay or that second half, that second eight weeks, maybe it was half pay. Because small practices, it's a little harder to afford everything. I, um, I think it's so important to show respect to your employees. The other thing that everybody wants is they want to learn stuff, they want to feel empowered. So I'm not a micromanager. I've had, I've had, usually have a practice manager who I entrust almost everything, including the books. And there have been people, of course, who entrust their managers with the books who have been embezzled, I believe. And it's actually happened to me once. But I have a bookkeeper, an accountant, and a manager so that we check, that's all checked to make sure that the financial part works out. But I want that person who is my manager to be able to leave my practice and have a number of skills so that they can get a 
as good a job or a better job. Same with my assistants. So they're all phlebotomists, basically. I wanted them to be phlebotomists. I want them to know medicines. If I have a conundrum or a question within my office, I say, who's ever got a moment, get online and let's see what people are saying of how we solve this. So they, my staff, becomes part of the solution to anything. So I've got burning mouth and I can't remember or, uh, you know, what's the, what's the um, amount of medicine if we're using pyridoxine, for example, or any one of the B vitamins. Um, so I, 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 I include them in helping me solve problems. So that empowers them. And, um, and I think empowering your staff, trusting your staff, not micromanaging your staff is all real important. I've never had a time clock, so I trust that they come and go. And also we, we pay them when I'm away, and everybody got a half a day off during the week when I'm away. So you want to remunerate them well. Sure. That's pretty much it. How would you deal with an employee who is, isn't meeting your expectations? We did talk about that earlier, too. And that's always hard. One of the hardest things I've done is fire people. I think I've fired four people in my um, as a practitioner. And it's usually I fire them for um, some kind of a disrespectful um, behavior. And disrespect comes in many forms, of course. But I remember this one person who was bullying the staff. And I realized that there was some oh, there was a kerfuffle, there was some uneasiness. Many of us can sort of feel energy within a staff. So I felt like there's something up. And then I, oh, talk to people off to the side and, and through conversation and questioning and the help of my manager, uh, this person was identified as a bully. And, I, and then I just deal with it directly. I usually sit with them, with the manager present, look them in the eyes and say, I'm really sorry to have to have you leave my practice, but it's, it's not mutually beneficial any longer. I usually say that. And oftentimes, if they ask for a, uh, some sort of a letter of recommendation, I will say, I can recommend you for lots of good things. And I've never said within that letter of recommendation, in my practice, she was a bully, for example. But I will say she was, she's bright and skilled. And we just disagreed on, on say, a manner of, taking care of each other or how, how we interacted with each other. So I tried to keep it respectful, but, but you have to be really, you have to have expectations and follow through with what your expectations, if they don't meet them. How would you handle a situation where two of your staff members weren't, weren't getting along, you know, that, that seemed to be an interpersonal problem? Yeah. Uh, it's really hard, and, and, I've, and I'm going to be specific, but I've heard in the past, too, that many offices will have these infights, perhaps even petty, some people describe them as. And I think it's best then, I usually, if I'm to follow through on my last comments, I usually let the office manager handle it first, and I will, in concert with her, or at least in conversation, I may go to her and say, would you, do you perceive this as a problem? Or so-and-so came to me after work hours and wanted to express some disagreement or they were disgruntled or they were feeling like they weren't being honored by someone else. And then I will say to my manager, how do we work on this? And I will say to that person who's come to me, give me a few ways to kind of work on this so that I can have some ability to help solve this. So I do all of that and we get people together. Once, once we... 
identified and we've worked it, worked around it a little bit, then we'll come right at it and we'll get two people together. So how are we going to make this work out so we all kind of are satisfied and wanting to come to practice, come to the office? Yeah. It's hard. Those are hard. Those are tricky. Yeah. But I Sometimes think- they solve themselves, people leave, but not always. Yeah, yeah. We've kind of hit on this a little bit already, but I'm curious if you can tell me about a change that you've made in your mindset when it comes to your practice or treating patients. What What is something that perhaps you used to believe really strongly that, that now if you've changed your mind or that you have, you have a different uh, belief system about something? I will begin by saying, and hopefully some thoughts will come to me, that I'm always open to a new solution. And I'm going to, I'm going to, Tan, I'm going to do a tangential answer, then I hope to become more specific. But recently, I went to an implant course in Chicago. And uh, I usually, I've done my bone grafting how I really, I thought I really liked it. But I, I think continuing ed is so important. So this last implant conference, which was, I think this last December in Chicago, I changed a, a bone grafting technique. And I thought, wow, I wonder if I should call all my patients for the last 30 years and redo things because it was just, I was, it was just really a nice technique. And as, and I'm just going to give you that technique because I want to. There was this Eastern European surgeon who demonstrated creating a flap. These are basically buckle flaps. And he said, you want this flap so loose that when your patient leans over, say they bend 90 degrees at the waist, open their mouth, that the flap falls out of their mouth. And I thought, Wow, I'm not making my flaps big enough. So that one surgical thing made a huge difference. One of the things that I've also learned in my practice, and this may not be specifically to what you've asked, Lance, is to slow down. I try very hard not to get rattled or not to get anxious. I'm going to give you a couple of techniques for that too. And if I find that it's getting intense within a room, I slow myself down. And I demand of myself detail. I took out a couple of little teeth on a on an odontoma today. It was a lingual approach, really hard, right behind a couple of uh, might be might have been your patient, a couple of um, anterior incisors. Very little to work with, very little room to get at it, and I didn't want to hurt anything. And I actually had to split one of these little tooth-like things, and um, and I said to myself, slow down. Take your time. And this child was just waking up from an IV. And so that's one of the things that I I sometimes would want to hurry up and get it done because they're waking up or it's difficult and you just want to be done with it. So I've said, no, I discipline myself. No, don't hurry. Slow down and do a better job. So I would say I'm open to learn. Second is the, I, one of the things I've, is, is to slow down. The other thing that I, I've also discovered recently that I am now practicing is I don't have to have the final word in any kind of a disagreement, even with my staff. Yes, I am sort of the boss, I guess. I don't, never consider myself the boss. I need these people as much as they need me. And I never want it to be heavy-handed or a know-it-all, even with my employees. So sometimes if they, they've had a bad day uh, or if something is just irritating them and I'm sort of the brunt of it, let it go sometimes. I don't have to address everything. I don't, I, I think to control one's ego makes us happier. So if my ego demands 
that I tell them I'm not a boss and it's my way or the highway, I say to my ego, shut up. It's still your way, but no one has to know it. I don't have to tell everybody, this is my practice and you're fired. I just have to be quiet, learn to be quiet. So, so I, if I can control my ego and I can relate to people humbly, it all works out better. And I don't feel like I've crushed my own spirit, which you crush your own spirit, you can't perform as well. So let me give you, if, when I'm starting to get nervous, let's say the average person breathes about 12 times a minute. So I'm going to take you back to school for a minute. You, as you know, oxygen is about 20% in room air. Rest is nitrous in except for all kinds of particles from carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, all kinds of stuff. So I know that I'm about usually 12 beats per minute. But if we get excited, you can get faster than that. But the way to bring your blood pressure down and to return to calmness is to only breathe about eight times a minute. And you do that by, you know, and you, you just take a breath in, you can hold it one, two, six, eight seconds, and then let it out. And you do that, you can even do that while you're with a patient. You just slow the procedure down, you do less so you don't hurt anything, because you, you, you don't want to lose present moment on that, you know, that crown you're doing. But if you slow down and you just kind of fiddle a little bit while you're breathing, then everything will start to slow down in your body. So I slow my breath to about eight per minute. That helps me all to slow down. And I remind myself, I don't have a specific religion, but I believe in a divinity. I remind myself that that person in front of me is divine, and I have to give them that respect, and I can just slow myself down and do all of that. And then I may say a small prayer. Can you help me out here to whoever's listening in the universe? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I could hold it for a long time, but I need help now. Sure. I think that's fantastic. I think this will be our last question here, Len. You no, mean- not the last one, Lance. <laughs> <Yes>. So much fun. <laughs> you mentioned speaking at a graduation, that that was a goal that you had. That's what we'll end with here. What advice would you have if you were to be standing before a group of of new graduates um maybe they're dentists uh, you know maybe not but someone who's just starting their career and they want to someday look back at the end of their career and feel good about what they've accomplished what what advice would you give at that uh, convocation address i'm so glad you asked this question i really wanted to answer this question i didn't even think that you would ask this question but i know the question is right for me because i my the hair is standing on my arms and i i'm close to crying so when i'm close to crying that means there's lots of truth around um i i i wanted to be at a gra- i want to speak at a graduation and i'm going to i'm going to make it a little longer answer i don't even know why it's a bucket list thing but i i just want to be able to do that maybe just to to see if i can inspire someone and um I want to use the image of King Arthur, of pulling that sword from the stone. And I I may even, if I'm the speaker, I'm going to make a contraption, a sword in a stone, and that I can release the sword. And I want to make it a bit of a show at the graduation because there are so few graduations that one remembers. So I would would relate this sword in the stone because I use the King Arthur image in my own head. Do we have the courage? Do we have the, do we have the kindness? And, and do we have the good intentions so that we are worthy to pull the sword from the stone? I always want to be able to pull that sword from the stone. I'm not sure that I could. But I want to let these people know that their commencement, which is the beginning of their 
life in service, and it is a life in service. You can make a good living as an orthodontist or an oral surgeon or a family dentist, and you can have trips and parties and live in a nice home, but your work is to be in service to your patients or your neighbors or anybody you interact with, and then, you know, enjoy the good life, of course. Be authentic. Be yourself. If you cannot be yourself, there is no one else. You have to be yourself. There's no one else you can be. So I want to tell them that, but I, I've told my kids ever since they could understand the concept of a role model is that every action that you do, you should consider yourself a role model. So I would do that at the graduation, and I would say, don't let any cultural pressure thwart you in becoming who you're supposed to become. And don't our nation now, in many nations, the God is money. Don't let money be your God. I make a very good living. I can retire. But I've never let money be my God. And then I would probably say one of my favorite poets is a person named Hafez. He was a 14th century mystic poet from Iran. And he said, It is the small man who puts everyone they know in cages, while the big man who has to duck when the moon is low laughingly passes out keys to all the rowdy prisoners. <laughs> I love that poem. Anyway, this has been a really lot of fun, Lance. Yeah. Thanks so much. Len, as always, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for spending uh, some time with us today. You're so welcome. A real pleasure. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. Music